All right, turn in your Bible to Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19. We're continuing our series to live in the presence of God, and we're in the middle of the book of Leviticus. Remember that the book of Leviticus, the entire thing takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai, and so far what we have seen, God's given instructions about the sacrifices, he's given instructions about the priests, then we saw the story of Nadab and Abihu who went in to God's presence, but they went in the wrong way, they went disobediently and God consumed them with fire. And so the question is raised, how then do we come into God's presence? And the next several chapters are all about clean and unclean, making sure that you're ceremonially clean when you come into God's presence. And then chapter 16, which takes place the same day as chapter 10, Nadab and Abihu, is the day of atonement. And so we see what it takes to come into God's presence. And now, having moved on from the day of atonement, we're in the section of the book that's kind of often referred to as the holiness code. It's like we're answering the question, now that we know how to come into God's presence, how do we live in God's presence? How do we do that in a holy way? So it's laws for holy living. And today, we're going to look at law and love from Leviticus 19, verse 1 down through the beginning of verse 19. So we're only doing half of the chapter this morning. And I'll just let you know what the plan is. I'm going to kind of go quickly through just a couple verses at a time and explain what's in each of these little uh, laws or statutes that's there. But then we're going to go back and we're going to dig in on one particular verse and spend the majority of our time there. And what we do on that one verse, you really could do on any of the verses that give laws and statutes in this chapter, but obviously we don't have time to do that. So we're doing one kind of as an example this morning. So we're in Leviticus 9, excuse me, 19. We're going to start in verse 1. And the theme here, um, you can see, is the idea of being holy, the way that God is holy, and that's how Moses introduces this set of laws. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy, For I, the Lord your God, am holy. So God sets the tone here by saying that his expectation for his people is that they are to be holy. And the reason for that is that he is holy. They are to be like him. And as he sets the tone for this chapter, there's a couple of things that we should note briefly. Number one, first, this command to be holy is followed by a list of very specific kind of material, tangible commands. You want to be holy? Here's how you should live. Second, the standard of holiness for God's people is God himself. God's laws are based on his character. Christian ethics has a very definite standard. Be holy like God is holy. Verse 3. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. Okay, all the children and teens should take note of this. The very first way that God gives here to be holy is to honor your parents. We're told that we are to honor God with what we own and we're to fear and revere God. We see that in scripture. We're told the same thing about parents. We're to honor them with what we own and we are to fear or revere them. Our parents represent God to us. And we're to treat them in a similar way to how we are to treat God. 
Have you ever noticed that Jesus did this? He did his father's will, even when it was difficult, even when, humanly speaking, he didn't want to. He obeyed his father. He honored his father. So what does it look like to honor your parents? Well, it means obeying them. It means respecting them. You might not always agree with them, but you don't talk back. You don't complain to them. You don't complain about them. You don't argue. You trust them. Why? Because God has put them in place as your parents. And if you're to be like Jesus, you must obey your parents the way Jesus obeyed his father. Now, we're also told here to keep the Sabbath and not to worship idols. To be very honest, I'm still studying the Sabbath command. Some people think that we're still to keep the Sabbath command completely today, meaning that Sunday is a day of rest. Others think that because Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath picture of rest by giving us rest from our labors, since he does the work of righteousness for us, we no longer need to keep the Sabbath. I think that What we can say at a minimum is that a Christian should have a very high priority on Sunday, the Lord's Day, shown by gathering together with God's people to worship him. So extra things like sports and other activities should not be allowed to get in the way of honoring God with this day. After all, when you choose something else over worship with the church, you're making a statement of what you actually value or of what you honor. As for idols, we may not make metal idols today, but we can easily let other things take the place of God in our lives. So idolatry is still a temptation. Anything that's so important that you can't let it go has the potential to be an idol, and nothing should take the place of God in our lives. Look at verses 5 through 8. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted, It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after. And anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. We talked about the peace offerings back in Leviticus 3. This was the one offering that the worshiper took home to eat after it was offered. And here, I'll just note that the offering was too much food for one family, so the expectation seems to be that you would share and use it all up in those first two days. All right, take a look at verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So farmers were supposed to leave a portion of their fields available for those who were in need, whether they were poor or just traveling through. And the amount that's left in the field was up to the owner. But this is God's means of regular charity to the poor. We see this practice at work in the story of Ruth. She's gleaning in Boaz's field. And gleaning was hard work. So this doesn't imply simply a handout, but it's an opportunity for work. And a hard worker might actually get hired by the farmer. It's not intended to create a welfare state, but to provide temporary relief for those who were in need. 
<clears throat> Excuse me. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. <clears throat> Sorry. <coughs> so the law against stealing tells us that God values private property. Otherwise, it wouldn't be stealing. The laws against dealing falsely and against lying tell us that God values truth and honesty in relationships. The law against swearing falsely has in view religious oaths or oaths taken in court. Jesus quotes this verse and says that we shouldn't take oaths, but he's referring to regular casual conversation. He's not ruling against all oaths in general. After all, he testifies under oath himself. And Paul uses religious oaths to verify what he's writing in various places. We should also note that the penalty for testifying falsely about somebody in court was that you received the penalty that they would have received had they been convicted. That's Deuteronomy 19. So God's laws are very wise. If we use that penalty today, much of the slander and false testimony that happens, especially like in the political world, would be done away with. All right, verses 13 and 14. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. So treat your neighbor justly, the way you would want to be treated yourself. Pay your employees promptly. Don't withhold their pay. Don't curse the deaf because they can't hear it and you're taking advantage of that. And don't put a stumbling block before the blind because they can't see it and you're taking advantage of that. Instead, fear the Lord. He made them in his image and showing them respect shows him respect. Verses 15 and 16. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. We're going to come back to verse 15 in a few minutes, so I'm going to skip it for now. Verse 16 tells us not to slander. This is similar to cursing a deaf person, but in this case, the person's absent, so they can't hear it. In Deuteronomy, we see that an accusation against someone should not be accepted unless there are two to three witnesses. Slander usually doesn't have two to three witnesses. You and I are responsible not to accept a slanderous statement. The phrase, you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor, probably means don't stand idly by when a fellow citizen is in danger. So if someone is falsely accused and your testimony could help them, speak up. Psalm 50 God says to the wicked, if you see a thief, you're pleased with him. In other words, the wicked don't intervene when they see evil happening, but God's people are to be different. There is no neutrality. Step up, get involved, and defend those who are in need. That's what Jesus teaches in the parable of the Good Samaritan, even. All right, verse 17 and the beginning of 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. 
You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Those who are holy, then, will not hold hatred in their heart toward their brother. Instead, they'll speak reasonably with him. Notice that if you do hate your brother, you incur sin because of him. So your brother sins, but then when your response is hatred, you sin too. Don't hold a grudge or take vengeance. Don't take justice into your own hands because God says that vengeance belongs to him. And then the end of verse 18 and the beginning of 19. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. Here, at the end of verse 18, beginning of verse 19, we have the main point. Love your neighbor as yourself and keep God's statutes. This divides the chapter in half. Moses is about to turn to another list of laws. But it serves as a summary of what we've seen. So the main idea is this. Christians love their neighbor by obeying God's law. Okay, so the basic principle is love for neighbor is expressed by obeying God's law. People often say, well, God's law is so oppressive. It's unloving. If you love someone, you wouldn't impose those rules or laws on them. But that's not how God defines love. God says, if you love your neighbor, then you'll follow his law. God's law, when it's followed, ensures just and compassionate treatment of all people. Let's take a look at one verse as an example this morning. And we'll dive deep on this verse, see what it's saying, but you could apply this to any of the laws that we've looked at this morning. And the, the one I want to look at is verse 15. It's the issue of justice. And this verse says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. So do no injustice, which means do justice. Don't be partial based on someone's social status. And the standard you should use is righteousness. So there's five aspects of justice that I want us to look at this morning. The definition of justice, the foundation of justice, the standard of justice, the goal of justice, and the limits of justice. So first, very briefly, the definition. What is justice? Well, biblically, it's to give someone what they rightfully deserve. Whether that's punishment or reward or compassion or care. And God says that justice is to be governed by his law. Not by our emotions or personal preferences. While those things are good, that's not what governs justice. Listen to what Proverbs 28, 4 and 5 says. Those who forsake the law praise the wicked, but those who keep the law strive against them. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. So justice is embodied in God's law, and God's people understand justice because they have his law. Let's talk about the foundation of justice. The Christian understanding of justice begins with the idea that this world was created by God. He designed it. He owns it. Since he's perfectly righteous and just, justice is based on his character. Justice is doing what's right. And what God does and what God is, is what's right. 
So justice is, first and foremost, giving to God what is due to him. Loving him, honoring him, obeying him. When we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we're acting justly toward him. And when we love our neighbor the way that he's taught us, we're acting justly toward them. When a society is God-centered, then it's able to operate with this shared understanding of justice for all. Rich or poor, upper class, lower class, black or white, man or woman, one concept of justice based on the unchanging character of the one God who made the world and everything in it. But when a society rejects God and embraces humanism instead, that's no longer the case. Darwin rejected creation in favor of the idea of evolution. But if the world is material, it's not spiritual, then this is just an endless struggle for survival and dominance. And every group is pitted against all the rest. And justice then is doing what's right for your group. So it's whatever meets the needs of your group. Those in power, politically power, excuse me, politically in power particularly, highlight the differences between the groups because that divides and it causes conflict. And then it seems that only the state can save things from collapsing. But a society can't survive that way. For justice to prevail, there must be this foundational understanding of our nature as creatures created by God. We're accountable to him. Let's talk about the standard of justice. Everyone who's aiming at justice of any kind has a, a standard of some kind that they're operating based on. All of life is ethical. Moral judgments require a standard of ethics. And the problem is we don't all have the same standard. Think about how the early church proclaimed the lordship of Christ over everything, including justice and ethics. In Romans 13, Paul says that magistrates government officials, are ministers of God who are to do his will, rewarding the good and punishing the evil. They represent God. Now, how are they supposed to know how to do God's will? How do they know what is good and what is evil? Well, God has revealed it in his law. So our verse here, Leviticus 19.15, tells us that the magistrate is to judge in righteousness. In other words, judge according to God's standard. Caesar claimed to be divine, and he was thought to be supreme over all. You were allowed to worship other gods as long as you recognized the ultimate supremacy of Caesar. You could avoid martyrdom, go on with your life, keep meeting as a church. All it takes is, once a year, a little pinch of incense on the altar to Caesar to recognize that he's ultimately supreme. Christians refused. Greg Bonson explains it this way. He says, in ancient Greece and Rome, the city or state was taken as the ultimate authority and yardstick in ethics. Caesar was lord over all when moral questions were raised. Over against that totalitarian, divinized state, the early church proclaimed the lordship of Jesus Christ. Why was the church seen as such a threat? Because they had another Lord, a different ultimate authority. And the Lord Jesus defined what was good 
and what was evil. He defined reality. The reformers and the Puritans were instrumental in recovering for us a worldview in which justice was defined by God's law. And even the king was subject to the law of God. That's pictured in this painting by Paul Robert called Justice Lifts the Nations. It hangs in the former Supreme Court building in Switzerland. It shows Lady Justice in her right hand, she's lifting the scales of justice. In her left hand is a sword. Why a sword? Well, Paul says in Romans 13 that the state has the power of the sword to execute justice. But the sword here is pointing down to an open Bible where everyone, the judges, the lawyers, and the litigants, can all come and find the standard of justice. See, we've been living in the world that they forged for a long time, but recently we've been running on fumes. There's not much left of that worldview in our culture today. The measuring stick of justice has shifted from God's laws to human laws that are based on our own human reason and desires. What is justice? The meaning of justice must either be grounded in God's character and his word, or it's based on human will and ideas. And if it's based on human ideas, then the standard will be constantly changing because people change. It'll be relativistic, changing to whatever those in power want it to be. Have you followed the decisions of different courts over the last five to ten years? You can see that in action. Laws, then, in that worldview are simply a reflection of the current beliefs of society. But the Christian understands that that's not justice. What you hear today called social justice is, according to God's standard, injustice. God and his word must be our standard for justice. Let's talk about the goal of justice. Now, I want us to see what the goal of biblical justice is, but by way of contrast, think first with me about the goal of social justice. What is social justice trying to accomplish? Well, because there's no ultimate standard of what is right based on God's character, humanism instead substitutes equality as the goal of justice. You combine that with critical theory and social justice focuses on taking power away from those who have more than their fair share and giving power to those who have less, tearing down the oppressor groups and shifting power to the oppressed groups. So we take it away from straight white Western males and give it to sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, women, etc. Now remember that justice fundamentally means what is right or righteous as opposed to what's wrong or sinful or what causes guilt and shame. But think about this. If, if justice is social, okay, social justice, rather than individual, then guilt is social, not individual. So social justice targets different groups in society as being unjust and therefore guilty because they're oppressors. They might not even mean to be oppressive, but since they've shaped the culture, they're the oppressors and they must be brought down. 
On the flip side, the more victimized you and your group are, the more moral authority you hold. And injustice is now seen to be systemic. The systems are in unjust. The institutions are unjust. The structures are unjust. That's textbook critical theory. It's the game plan for how to destroy a culture. If everyone is ultimately supposed to be equal, and if our differences are what have led to inequalities, then the differences themselves need to be done away with. If men have dominated women, we need to get rid of the very idea of male and female. So we blend genders, we change pronouns, we share restrooms and locker rooms, and we claim that gender is a social construct. And in Canada, a dad gets thrown in jail because he refers to his daughter as she when she thinks she's a he. If straight folks have dominated those who are LGBTQIA+, then we need to take away any privilege that straight people have. So marriage gets redefined. Adoption agencies are forced to cater to any orientation, and bakers must bake cakes for so-called gay marriage ceremonies. What we're really doing is we're rejecting the creator and the distinctions that he has made. And because when the law no longer actually expresses true justice, it loses the respect of normal people, the state must exercise its power to enforce the new morality. The state becomes the enforcer, but it also takes on the role of savior. The state provides the solutions to man's problems. Social injustice, the state will redistribute wealth to fix the problem. Racial injustice, the state will take advantage away from one group and give it to another. Climate injustice, the state will regulate what can and can't be done to the environment. Health injustice, the state will provide universal health care. Gender injustice, orientation injustice, the state will fill important positions of power with all kinds of minority and victim groups so that they now have the power. Economic injustice, universal basic income, universal college education, the state will save us. Ultimately, the unspoken goal is that the state will restore paradise. Through the power of the state, we'll conquer disease, eliminate racism, create economic welfare for everyone, and on and on. In the humanist view, though, man's problem is not that he's a sinner before a holy God. No, man's problem is his environment. Man's a victim, but the state will rescue him from inequality. The Christian view is radically different. Consider Jesus' parable of the talents. You remember this story that he told. Three servants were each given a different number of talents to invest and use. And it's not talent like an ability, it's, it's a measure of money. One was given ten, one's given five, another's given one. The servant who had one talent was afraid of the master. And so he took that one talent and he buried it for safekeeping. The other two invested theirs and they doubled the amount they began with. When the master returned, he commended and rewarded the two who had invested, and he expelled the one who had simply buried it. But notice, the master didn't give them all the same amount. And he didn't guarantee 
an equal outcome. But he expected them to, to work using what he gave them. If today's social justice warriors had their say, the two servants would have their wealth taken from them and redistributed to the oppressed victim servant who was only given one. And the master, well, the master would be canceled because he's furthering systems of injustice. But God expects the state to operate according to his standard of justice. God's kingdom will never be achieved by the action of the state. The state is no savior. Instead, the state is to come under the authority of God, the authority of Christ. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So the state is to operate in submission to him. Here's an analogy. Sometimes we have trouble getting our minds around that about the state, but we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. Why do we believe that? Because God designed marriage, and so he gets to define it. Well, God also designed the state. So he gets to define what it is and how it should operate. And Leviticus 19, verse 15, tells us that the minister of the state is to judge in righteousness. So Leviticus 19 tells us that this standard of justice is actually how we love our neighbors. Listen to what George Grant says about this. Biblical love is not naive, guilt-provoked sentiment. Biblical love is not a feeling. Biblical love is the compulsion to do things God's way, living in obedience to his unchanging, unerring purposes. Biblical law is the encoded mercy, grace, and peace of God. It is love's standard. Thus, biblical law does not lock us into heartless, soulless exercises in social control. Love and law are inseparable, working in tandem to the glory of Christ and his kingdom. In this discussion, we basically have two conflicting concepts of sovereignty. I want to talk about the limits of justice here. Is God sovereign or is the state sovereign? The Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign and the state is to be his minister, carrying out his will. When a state rules without God's law, it's taking power and authority that does not belong to it. And the word for that is tyranny. Tyranny is ruling with illegitimate power, power that doesn't belong to you. This is why we see a state that no longer adheres to God's law, and the result is, even though some may have good intentions, we have an always growing set of coercive laws forcing you to do what the state demands. See, God gives us liberties. Recall how in our own nation's founding, there were rights that were recognized and they were seen as God-given rights. And the role of the government was to protect those rights. But as the state pursues its goals, its own vision of what should be, your rights disappear and the laws and the mandates multiply. 
In God's design, the state has limited power. And you can see this in the verse that we're looking at, Leviticus 19.15. I want to give you three limits on power, and two of them are actually in this verse. There are lots of other places throughout Scripture, too. But this verse has some inherent limits on justice. First, look what is said to the magistrate, the judge. In righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Righteousness is justice. How is the judge to know what righteousness is? God's law. So the judge is limited to ruling according to God's law. He can't use his own ideas. He can't substitute his own opinions for what God has said. He's to rule in righteousness. Second, the verse says, you shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. So the judge is limited in that he may not consider the social condition of the person before him. Now we know that judges might be tempted to defer to the rich because they're influential and they're powerful. Today, oftentimes people want to defer to the poor or the marginalized, though it's not for good motives, just because of the group that they're part of. But God says the judge is not to consider social distinctions. The law applies equally to all. Now, in a couple chapters, Leviticus 24, we will see that they're to have the same law for the sojourner and the native. So ethnicity is not to be considered. In Deuteronomy 1, Moses says it this way. He says, judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. Rich or poor, foreigner or native, great or small, God's law cuts across all social distinctions. By the way, please note how that flies in the face of the critical theory worldview that dominates our culture today. Critical theory wants to divide everyone based on social distinctions, ethnicity, gender, orientation, economics, and then rig the system against those who have the advantages and in favor of those who are disadvantaged in some way. That's not justice. They call it social justice. God calls it injustice. It's rebellion against God. We need to hear Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. A third way that God limits the power of the state is by what we call sphere sovereignty. There are spheres of authority and they're not to overstep their authority by interfering in another sphere. So the spheres are the state, the church, and the family. So there's a family government. God places the husband as the servant leader and the parents rule over the children. And if you want to set nine o'clock as bedtime for your kids, the church doesn't have the authority to tell you otherwise. And the state doesn't have authority to tell you otherwise. And if you want to train your children by reading the Bible and praying and instilling a Christian worldview, the state has no right to interfere. And in the church, there's a government. God places the elders as servant leaders, and together the elders and the church members make decisions for the church. They choose when and where they will worship and how they will worship within the guidelines of God's word. And the family has no right to tell the church differently, and the state has no right to interfere with the worship of the church. 
We answer to Jesus, not Caesar. We cooperate with the state when it doesn't compromise our obedience to Christ, but no farther. So unbiblical and unconstitutional mandates based on bad politics and really bad science, deceitfully given in the name of public health, have no authority here. And the state has a government. God places presidents and justices and congressmen and governors and sheriffs and mayors as servant leaders. And the government has a sphere that is defined and limited by God. Punish the evil and reward the good. But it's limited to the civic realm. Not the church and not the family. So the state's limited in these three ways. The scope of authority is the civic realm. The standard of the law is to be righteousness and only righteousness. According to God's definition. And the application of that righteous law is to be equally applied to all men regardless of social distinctions. Now, when we hear how God has limited human government, one of the quick responses is, but what about, or but what if, and God's limits do have reasons. Let me give you an example in the sphere of the family, okay? One statute that God gives in his law, we mentioned it already, is that an accusation should not be accepted against someone without two or three witnesses. That could be one person and one piece of hard evidence. Those are your two witnesses. It could be the testimony of two individuals. It could be a video recording that is seen by two or more people. But the standard is that no accusation should be accepted simply on the word of one person. This is difficult to do, especially as a parent. And I want the children and the teens to listen closely here, okay? I will be the first to tell you, and my kids will back this up, I do not do this perfectly. But my kids also know that there have been plenty of times when two of them have come to me with some kind of conflict and their stories don't match up. And neither will budge on what they say happened. What I'm always looking for is other evidence. Was there another person around who saw what happened? Did I hear what happened? I might act to separate them for practical reasons or to take something away because it's the thing they're fighting about, but I try not to impose a penalty when there isn't a second witness because of this biblical principle, two or three witnesses. Now that's hard for me as a parent and it's hard for the kids because they want justice. They want the real offender to be punished. And rightly so. But here's why the Christian can handle following God's laws in this area. Okay? And kids, listen. We know there will be a final judgment. No one will get away with anything. Justice may not be done now, because of the limitations of the one trying to carry out the justice. But justice will be done because there's another witness. God sees everything. And as the perfectly just judge, he will ultimately act in justice. 
If we hold to the standard of two to three witnesses, won't that mean that people get away with things? Yes, it will, for now, but not in the end. And you and I as Christians, knowing that truth, can be okay with limited power and authority, limits on justice. Think of it this way. When we accept the limits of authority that God places on us, what we are really doing is recognizing that we are not God. We're not all-knowing. We're not all-powerful. We're not perfectly wise. Submitting to God, God's limits, means that we're humbly trusting him. So kids, when you submit to your parents, even when you don't like their decisions, and even when justice doesn't seem to be being done, that's an act of trusting God. And the same thing is true on a national level when the state chooses to operate within the limits that God has given according to his laws. We said here that the main idea in the first half of Leviticus 19 is that love for neighbor is expressed by obeying God's law. Love and law go hand in hand. When we reject God's law, that's not loving to our neighbor. God's law expresses the best way to live. So obeying God's law and upholding God's law is the most loving way we can live. If we want to be holy as God is holy, how do we do that? The pattern for holiness must be learned from God's word. Not our feelings of spiritual guidance. Rather, we're told God's spirit bears witness to the word. So we need to look at the word. We need to look to Jesus as our example. Hebrews 1 in verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus shows us what God looks like. So if we want to be holy like God, we need to look to Jesus who has revealed God to us. Paul tells the Corinthians that we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we are transformed, we're changed, as we behold Jesus' glory. We look to Jesus to see God and the Spirit uses that to change us so that we can be holy like God is holy. And one day, John writes, when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. We've talked a lot about justice this morning and about the law. And the reality is that all of us are lawbreakers. None of us perfectly obey God's law. And we also said that God is just, which means that he perfectly upholds his standard. And that means we're in trouble. We all deserve the penalty of the law for our sin. Paul explains to the church in Rome that God sent Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. He died in our place to take the penalty the law says we deserve. And as our representative, Jesus' perfect law-keeping righteousness stands in our place. So when God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. So God upholds the law and its penalty and he graciously welcomes us into his presence. Paul says that this was so that he might be just, upholding the law, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The law is good and holy, Paul says, 
but we won't be saved by the law. The law reveals God's character and his expectations for us. It's a gracious gift. And our families and our churches and our nation would be better off for following it. Proverbs 14 tells us righteousness exalts a nation. Before we close this morning, I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn there with me in your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to introduce it and then read it and not even comment on it. We've covered a number of important ideas this morning, but I want you to hear how all these things come together in what Peter writes. We're going to read verses 13 to 25. And listen for how these ideas come together. And by the way, Peter is here quoting Leviticus 19. Okay, so listen for these ideas. Holiness, being like God, law, justice, redemption in Christ, obedience to God's law, the word of God, the good news of the gospel, all these things that we've talked about this morning come together in this passage from Peter. So 1 Peter 1, 13 to 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Lord, as we consider your word this morning and we hear your design for how we are to live holy lives, I pray that we would take it to heart that we would be people who understand and uphold true justice because we have your word. Help us to remember that love for our neighbors is expressed by obeying God's law. Love and law go hand in hand. So help us to be truly loving and to uphold your holiness and to reflect that holiness to the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.